brothers and sisters in Christ, beloved of the Lord, have you ever pondered, sat and thought for a minute, or a couple minutes even, about the rise and fall of nations? The rise and fall of nations in history. The vast and intricate web of history, especially large-scale history. If we think back through the ages of, of man, we can see that kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, and the Lord says that's all in his hands. He's the one who's controlling all of these things. And here, as we look at chapter 11 of Romans, we get a view that Paul gives us of kind of large-scale history, what God's doing in history, what his plan is with the cosmos and with these sinners that inhabit here the earth, uh, both Jew and Gentile. God's large-scale plans are mentioned here, or maybe closer, hinted at. Paul is getting at something and showing us in some particular things very clearly, and maybe some other things not quite so clear or a little more obscure. But part of it is, and the main, the main focus, is the hardening of Israel. When Messiah came, Israel was hardened, rejecting Messiah, so that the Gentiles should come in to this work, this new covenant that God has made with Israel. And then really the question in the, in the midst of it is, well, then what about Israel? What's left for Israel as a nation or as a, as a people group um, and so on? So I want to consider that here still by way of introduction, looking back at the ninth chapter, because the ninth and the ninth and ten and eleven all hang together. Right? These are three chapters that really make one unit. And I think in you know chapter nine is you know hot and heavy on what we might call Calvinism or the sovereignty of God and election and reprobation and all that. So chapter nine stands out in my mind. In years past, it's like. Yeah, there's that great chapter on the sovereignty of God, and then it's like, yeah, he talks about that a little bit in chapter 10, and again a little bit in chapter 11, but, you know, the whole thing seemed to be about the sovereignty of God, where I think the actual, the sovereignty of God, God Paul brings in as, as an explanation of what's going on with Israel and the nations. Right, that's, that's, this is God's plan. God's the one doing this. God's the one electing. God's the one who uh, has, has foreknown his people and, uh, and passes over and hardens those as well. And all that comes into God's plans for history, God's large-scale plans for history. So look at the beginning of chapter 9, where Paul brings this whole topic up. You'll remember his own posture of weeping in prayer. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ Christ, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And of course, we're speaking of the Jews, right? His Jewish brethren. They are Israelites. Here, here's, here's all the benefits, or some of the benefits accrued to them as, as Israelites, as God's people. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, as we look forward at the rest of this section, 9, 10, and 11, we say, oh, well, there's this olive tree, right? And, and, and uh, the, the natural branches are cut off, and some wild shoots are put on. And that root, that, that tree, right, the olive tree itself, is kind of what this is, what we see there listed off in these little verses, that what God had given to Israel, these traditions and truth and revelation, um, all that is the, nur- you know, is the nourishment to Israel. And interestingly, as they, as they reject Messiah, 
they often reject them on the basis of those very things. Their Jewishness. The Jewish particulars of what it is to be an Israelite when they don't see the fullness of what being an Israelite actually is. As they get caught up in, in their religious uh, observances and, and priorities, but they lose the Messiah in the midst of all that. And we'll see that as, as we go a little more and more. Verse 6, though, brings up the great question that Paul's asking. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. He doesn't ask it as a question. There he is, makes it a statement. What does he mean by that? Well, the word had been given to Israel. And why didn't they receive their Messiah? Why have they rejected what God has sent? Why have they turned and actually murdered Messiah and gone with those who would oppose God and his kingdom? That's the great question being asked here. What happened to Israel? What's going on here with them? And and then uh, not only the question that's being addressed the whole time, but then really the fundamental answer to it as well. For God, this is not the next verse here, or the next sentence, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all of Israel is Israel. That is, there's this election reality that God has his covenants in time and space. In history, he works through covenant, but we know that he elects those who are saved. And we know that the reprobation is a real thing. He rejects those who he doesn't, in his eternal counsel, that he has decided to reject is the elect and the reprobate, and that's, that's really what stands behind this whole thing, both in Israel, of a remnant of believers within Israel, but also of the Gentiles who are coming in like a flood into the church, that God has elected them to do that, to bring them in to this church as well. So we see here, I think, the, the, the issue that Paul's dealing with, and we're going to pick back up this what, what to do with Israel and, and all these Gentiles and how to make sense of this. And at the, at the bottom of it all, is the sovereignty of God over individuals, but also over nations, right? over the movements of peoples all through history. So first I want to consider the hardening of Israel. And we've talked a bit about that. That's been a theme here as we kind of moved into and through, through chapter 11. But also the Gentile mission, and then the future for Israel. The question mark at the end of that. First, the hardening of Israel. It's said that Israel has stumbled, in chapter 11, the very question that we're asking here, um, have they stumbled in order that they should fall? Okay, well, what, what is stumbling and what is falling? We can watch around, if you just, after we're done worshiping here and having some fellowship, you know, some of these little ones that won't not run, um, and they're running in between people's legs and trying to find, you know, just spot a light and that's good enough they can get through it and all that sort of thing. Well, they'll stumble you, right? You'll, you'll trip on them and you'll back over them or sometimes, you know, will, will appear, just appear right behind me uh, as I'm stepping back. I know she was there, but that will cause me to stumble, okay? So the question is, did Israel stumble in order that, that, that Israel should fall, right? So oftentimes, or sometimes anyway, falling accompanies stumbling. You stumble around, lost your balance, and down you go. Okay, so that, that could be a, an, an outcome of stumbling. That's what Paul's asking. Did Israel stumble in order that she would fall? Is it over for Israel? Do you get the question? Like, we know they stumble. We get that. Is it over? To me, that question by itself guides the whole passage in what we expect God to be doing with Israel. Because the answer is, absolutely not! That's the answer. Right, we say, oh, may it never be, or these kind of weird things. But he couldn't, he couldn't express it in a starker way, saying, no, no, Israel has not stumbled that they should fall. Absolutely not. They have stumbled. And that stumble is your salvation. Praise be to God. 
But your salvation is also going to be a provoking reality to Israel and her salvation too. So God has all these things wrapped up and tied together. And it's not as though Israel has stumbled that she should fall. But she certainly has stumbled. Again, back in chapter 9, looking at verse 27. Kind of the nature of their stumble. Israel cries out concerning, I'm sorry, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. We talked about that. You know, this God's, God's electing a remnant of Israel to be faithful. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would, be, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Okay, so Israel's in bad shape. And they stumbled, and they stumbled over the stumbling stone, the rock of offense, Jesus himself. Okay. Jesus came, he came into his own, but his own did not receive him. Israel did not receive their Messiah. In fact, far from putting a crown on his head and sitting him on the throne, like some of them might have wanted to do, they put a crown of thorns on his head and put him on a cross so that he died. They murdered their Messiah. That's the irony of the whole thing. That God has sent his very own son, and of course Jesus talks about this in his parables. Uh, the Father says, I'll send my son. Certainly they'll respect my son. They say, ooh, we kill him, we get the vineyard. So it was with Israel. They put their Messiah to death. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Um, and they are, there's a remnant that will believe. There's a remnant that God's kept. But overall, there's a hardness that's come on Israel. Indeed, a hardening. What shall we say then? The Gentiles, this is verse 30 of chapter 9. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, the righteousness that's by faith. That is, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they pursued it. They did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. But of course, whoever does not believe on him will be crushed by that stone, that stumbling. Now, Israel was wrapped up in the law in its own righteousness, and in doing the right things, and being religious in the right way, and making sure they read their Bibles every day, making sure they did their prayers every day, making sure they did all their religious stuff. And it's in that very stuff they got lost. Right? It's in that very stuff. Now, they might not be doing it, obviously, the right way. I think we should be studying and reading our Bibles every day. We should be praying every day. We should do all those things. But they're no substitute for Messiah. All our religious efforts, all our Lord's Day worship, all our fasting, or whatever it is that we do in these exercises that we do uh, to serve our Lord and to to be uh, conformed to the image of Christ, they're all nothing without Messiah. He's the centerpiece of all of it. And of course, based upon those things, they reject Messiah. Based upon the Jewish particulars and the ways of worship and, and the traditions of the fathers and so on and so on, they reject the very Messiah who comes to them. Now, there's a, just to kind of take a step back and say, there's a way in which, still today, right now sitting there, we can be very religious and dead to God. You can be very religious. You can wear a collared shirt and everything and still be dead to God. So have no relationship with God, whatever. We just go through the motions. It's easy to do. May it not be true of you. 
May you lift your heart to the Lord and say, or if you can't do that, uh, cast yourself to the ground and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. But either way, we're, we're relating to the living God through his son, Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. That's the way into God. The Jews say, thanks, we have our own ways. We don't need this one. That's the stumbling block. They had stumbled. Their works versus Jesus. Their works versus Jesus. And their works were tied in with that root, that Jewishness, those covenants, the promise, the glory, the giving of the law, all of that. Their works that actually blind them so they can't see Messiah and won't come to him are all very religious and come out of good things. But that's what sinners do. They take good things and make them bad. We take the good things that God has made, behold, all very good. And we pervert it and twist it and start worshiping idols and our hearts are dark and God gives us over to the desires of our hearts. So this rejection of Messiah by Israel is the beginning of the move outward. Outward of the Messiah, of the Gospel. And we have to think of, and it's very important, that Christianity in these early years, right, in the Apostles' time and after Christ's resurrection and ascension, is vastly missionary. Right? It's, it's going out, it's pushing out, and some of that's because of persecution that right, drives Christians out. But they have this message and they're taking it. And they're publicly doing it. And we have probably 30 years before Rome says, okay, well, no more of you. Okay, you guys are now outlawed. You're no longer Jews because, of course, from Rome's standpoint, Christians and Jews are nearly indistinguishable until they become distinguishable uh, because Christianity, as we're reading right here, comes out of this Jewish covenants, right? The history of redemption that, that runs from Israel all the way down to Christ Jesus, but then takes this opening move in a new covenant to, in, to include all kinds of people from around the world, not just Jews. So, we are sitting here today, and we owe our very salvation to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a faithful son of Israel. In fact, he's the one faithful son of Israel. And so, I heard a preacher, I think R.C. was preaching it, that, and then I'll mention it again, that good old-fashioned Jew-hating, good old-fashioned Jew-hating, I don't want to like, use the word anti-Semitism, because it's more popular and buzzword. And it means all sorts of things. But just good old-fashioned. Everyone knows what I'm talking about, unless you're like five years old or younger. Just the hatred of the Jews is something that Christians should hate. Not something we should engage in. Knock it off. I put that out there because I think you scratch a few evangelicals and you find some good old-fashioned Jew haters. Shame on you. It's sin. Repent of it. In fact, this whole passage should make us deeply desire, like Paul himself, the salvation of the Jews. Because there's a promise attached to it. Do you read it? What about life from the dead for this place? Well, that's going to happen when the Jews are provoked by our Christianity, our faithfulness, our love, not our hatred and bile, but our love. And the Lord opens their hearts, and they come into the kingdom that they've been cut out of because of their unbelief. That's our job, is to bring them the gospel. So something like Jews for Jesus is very, very, very good. It's also very, very, very controversial. Right? Because the Jews in America don't want your gospel. Just like Paul says, they're enemies of the gospel. But for your sake, we'll get there. The hardening of Israel. This is God's plan. This is God's doing. Israel is hardened. They do not receive their Messiah. They reject him. They kill him. And then they persecute the Christians who would go after him. 
in this Gentile mission. So the Gentile mission, then, is this the kind of missionary work, and the mission means being sent. Right? So being sent by the church out to the Gentiles, out to these pagans, right? Out to these idol worshippers, out to these, they worship false gods. They have no notion of the true God, or how to worship Him, or what His commandments are, or what His covenants are. They don't know any of that stuff. The Jews do, because salvation is of the Jews. And then it goes here out to the Gentiles. This Gentile mission was promised all the way from the beginning. That is to say, from Abraham, who is going to be a blessing to the earth, and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham. Well, it is many, many, many generations and centuries until that comes to pass, though we get little little pieces of it with little missionary work. Jonah is a great example from the Old Testament. A little bit of missionary work on the the case of, uh, of an Israelite, but we don't get a lot of that. Israel and Israel's kind of, they tend to be more self-contained in history. Uh, That's the case in the ancient world. It's the case all the way into the Middle Ages as well. Uh, Jews tend to be on their own. They have their own ghettos. And it's not just because everyone else doesn't want them in their midst, though that happens sometimes too. They don't want everyone else in their midst. Uh, There is something under themselves. Christianity, although there's there's an aspect of it that way, has always been more missionary. We want people to hear. We want people to come. Christ sent us out into the world to tell people that Jesus Christ died for sinners and to repent and receive him, to to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. So this missionary impulse is not something we see through the history of Israel really much at all, but we see it like a firestorm in the first century of, of being willing to go out and tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ and bring them into the church. And, of course, the powers that were... So the powers that be, but they were being. Uh, the Roman powers said, we don't want any of you, and we're going we're to quash your Christianity, any public exercises of it. Now think about this. If you can put yourself into, even into the shoes of a faithful Jew, a believing Jew of the first century, it's like, hey, Messiah has come, and this whole wild thing where he died and rose from the dead, and suddenly the church is, is popping there in Jerusalem, and it's all Jews. But then within a generation... Certainly within two generations. It's vastly, the, the Jews are vastly, vastly outnumbered by Gentiles. It's a Gentile church built on Jewish tradition, on the scriptures of the Old Testament in particular, and then of course the New Testament. So rapidly, those outsiders, and they were always outsiders, right? They're, they're not part of Israel, they're not part of the covenants, they're not circumcised, they don't have any of that stuff. They're outsiders. They're fodder for hell, is what they are. Suddenly those outsiders... Not only are coming in in huge numbers, but take over the whole thing. Try to think about how that goes from a Jewish standpoint. It's hard to receive that. It's hard to receive this, these outsiders and to know what to do with them. And, of course, this is what gives rise to Paul's concerns here in, in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Right? That's, that's all part of the question he's asking. Well, what, what do we do? How do we understand this thing going on where God's people, Israel, have rejected Messiah, yet the nations have received him and are coming in, even in droves? So Jesus and the New Covenant has a distinctive missionary impulse. And that's kind of come and gone in, in, in church history. Uh, it's, it's, it's harder to be outwardly worshiping and evangelizing when you're illegal, right? when you're, you're it pains for your own life and your own property to mention Christ or to proclaim him. But all the way through church history, you see a great impulse to evangelize, to, to be involved in mission work, to tell people, about the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we are today. Same spot. Where God's called us in the same thing to 
proclaim Christ. To proclaim Christ from this pulpit, in your ears, but to take Him with us as we go. To speak of Him as we go. To glory in Christ. And it seems like it's awkward to do that, but I'll mention that it's a, it's a weird awkwardness that's probably in our own minds exclusively. Which is to say, people don't mind telling you about things they love. People don't mind about it. They can have a whole month. we got a whole pride month, right? A whole month long, we get socked in the jaw with uh, homosexual rhetoric and you know, nastiness. Uh, they got a whole month to have parades. Everyone else says no Christian history month? A month of Christian history where we can have like Christian flags and, and put them up on all the windows and everyone says, yeah, cool, that's, it, that, this doesn't work that way. But we take it out nonetheless, right? We live our lives faithfully by God's mercy and we connect with people and we tell them about the salvation full and free in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the church does. And in our best moments, this is what the church has always done. To take that message out. To give it away that God would bring people in. Even kind of people we don't like. And in time, by His Spirit, we'll get to like each other. We'll get to know each other. We'll get to be function as, as a body together. And do remember, it is God who builds the body. He puts each one in its place. And so, even in a little congregation like this, we say, well, you know, there's that family over there that's kind of weird, or they did this. That's always the case. Every church, every organization is going to have that. But we're here, Christian, in the power of the Holy Spirit, called to be one body, unified in Christ Jesus. May we press after that and seek God as we take the mission out, and as we disciple those who come in, as we love them and pour ourselves into them. We do that with those who come in from the outside. Hopefully we can do that and do it well as people come in. But also we do it with our little ones as they come up. We disciple them and train them up in the ways of God that they would not depart from it. So there's a hardening of Israel that provokes, or is, is, is the means by which the gospel comes to the Gentiles. The Gentiles, now that's us, right? So we're here. Our salvation is given because God hardened Israel that the gospel message should come out to the Gentiles. And here it is all these centuries later, still doing that same work, still going out. The Jews still hardened. And just like in Paul's day, some of them coming. Kind of onesie-twosie or small numbers that are provoked by Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, he says. The Gentiles coming into the church. And here it is. We've received and are enjoying and will enjoy more fully the blessings of the inheritance of Abraham. It's the promises made to Abraham that we get included in. That's the Jewish inheritance. Right? So... You can see it among the kids in your house or whatever. Like There'll be a toy that's somebody's toy, and somebody else happens to pick it up, and that person who owned that toy hadn't cared about it for months. I mean, it might as well be gone. That thing could be in you know, Easter Timbuktu. It doesn't matter until the sibling picks it up, and suddenly that toy is the one they want. That sort of thing. They're provoked by someone having something. It's like that with Israel. That's the image we have here, is that we're enjoying these things that were promised to Israel. But in their unbelief, they turned away from God, and God's hardened them. And in His mercy, those benefits have come to us, so to provoke them to want them. So, Christian, do you live a life that would provoke a Jew to want to come and be a part of your life? Do you live life in such a way that people look in at your family or at this church and say, Wow, you know, nobody's perfect, and no family's perfect. But I'm down with that. I'm interested in what they're doing over there, and that sort of thing. That's how we should be living, loving, and serving our God. So what then, 
again, getting back to Paul's question, did Israel stumble in order that it should fall? By no means. That's not what's going on here. That's not the issue. Let's read it again. This is verse 11 of chapter 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Think about that question. And the word full inclusion is maybe a little bit of an over-translation or giving some. Uh, their fullness is what the, what the text says, the, the, the pleroma, the fullness of Israel. What's he talking about? He's saying, hey, listen, at this point we can see that Israel's been hardened, and that's a great benefit to the world. That's riches to the Gentiles and to the world because Israel's been hardened. What, what do you think will happen when their fullness is here? Now, is that fullness all the Gentiles coming in and filling in and filling out the church? It's certainly part of that. But is there hinting here? There's something that there's a fullness, there's a, there's a conversion. We'll put it very directly and, and, and succinctly. Is there a future conversion of Israel en masse? Right? Israel as, the, as a nation, as a people group. Even as the nations um, have been converted to Christianity... Right. The nations have come, and Constantine's a big part of that because he makes it, so we're talking about Constantine this morning, but he makes it uh, available, uh, an available option and even a popular option for your nation to become Christian. Uh, so we can see in history the Christianity and that missionary impulse, and this isn't all like airtight and perfect, but we can see the nations coming. Is Israel one of those nations? They will say, unlike it says right now, they, uh, they're opposed to Christianity and they're opposed to Christian proselytization, our missionary work there, they don't want it. Well, they finally say, yeah, we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Messiah. I don't know how we missed him all these years, but now we know. And that will be life from the dead for this world. If their hardness and their stumbling has been good for us, as riches for us, how much more? How much more were their fullness be. Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, to magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus to save some of them. So, you know, even in Paul's time, in his work, that he's trying to make the Jews jealous and, and bring them into Christ, bring them into the church. For if their rejection, verse 15, means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Paul's not, in, in, in my view, and I'm trying to understand this, he has not specifically said, hey, there's this future conversion of Israel. It's coming. They're en masse are going to come. But he does seem to hint at something like that. In particular with the question, have they stumbled in order to fall? Now, we all know the remnants, right? That's fine. There's a remnant, and there's a remnant in Paul's time. There's this remnant. But is he talking about more than that? Is the fullness of Israel something more than just a, a remnant of Israelites and a bunch of Gentiles? Because that's what it is in Paul's time, and that's what it is in our time. Is there a time when Israel will repent and believe the gospel? No. People go different, different ways with this text. One might say, well, all Paul's really talking about is the very dynamics at play in his own period, in his own ministry, which is preaching to the Gentiles, provoking a few Jews to jealousy who come, but the rest of them, and they'll be the remnant, the rest of them are all lost, and that's the, the fullness of Israel's, the Gentiles coming in, and the, a handful of Jews. Another option, it seems like a very popular option here in the last couple uh, 150 years, a little bit more, is dispensationalism. 
So dispensationalism comes on the scene here in the mid-19th century um, with a distinctive view of Israel and the church. Right? There's always, always been, always been questions. What's the nature of the relationship between historic Israel, this national people, and the church that comes out of that? What's the relationship? Right? And it's not, it's, it's a vexed question. There are plenty of, there are plenty of uh, things to tie together there to understand. Well, dispensationalism basically comes in and says nothing. Right? They're, they're, we enjoy some certain, as a church, here this new covenant body is entirely distinct from Israel. Right? God has certain promises to Israel, and they look at a text like this and say, and he's going to fulfill them in the millennium. So in this thousand year period coming, when Christ comes physically to reign on earth, he'll convert the Jews. Right? And, and, and not convert them to this church thing we got going, but convert them back to faithfulness in this other track that they're on, this Jewish track, because there's a there are promises to the Jews that are distinct from promises to the church because the Jews are one people and the church is a, de- is a distinctively different people. Okay, so dispensationalism kind of breaks this thing up and they say, okay, well, there's this future for Israel right here. It's going to, they're going to redo the sacrifices. This thing's coming back. They're going to, it's going to look like it was, which, of course, is regression, a covenantal regression to go back to the old covenant here once the news opened up. But that's part of dispensational, fundamental, classical dispensational theory. So, anyway, I mention all that because, that, and that's, that's a theology that is right through the middle of conservative, Bible-believing evangelicalism. It's all over the place. All the people you love, like John MacArthur, and other people like him, he's a good example because he's, you know, he's Calvinist and Reformed in a lot of ways, but he's a dispensationalist, and a lot of guys are. And that's, that, I think that's a problem. I think it's false doctrine, um, but it's one of those deals where you can see, we can work with guys that talk like that, especially if they're square on, on other fundamental theological issues. So, the dispensationalists, therefore, would look at this text and say, oh, we got it. There's a millennium coming in which God's going to deal with the Jews and bring them out. And, but, but the problem is, too often, it's not bring them out of their unbelief into Christ Jesus, into the new covenant. It's continuing on with the old covenant and maybe some kind of belief there. It's a goofy thing. Instead of, because what we're looking for is this, and this is what I think we can hope for from this text. The new covenant is open. The Gentiles have been brought in. This is, this is God's work. And in the midst of all this, God has plans to bring Israel back as well. A, a revival of Israel, an expanded remnant. Right? The, the, there's a fullness of Israel to come in. That's not referring to the Gentiles coming in, but the Jews themselves at some point. That God would receive and, and bring Israel, not into their own sacrifices, but into the point of the sacrifices, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? The whole point of the ceremonial laws, just like the rest of the Bible, is to point to Jesus. Jews need Jesus. And it seems that there is a, a plan here from God to say, yep, you guys are, you Gentiles are coming in, and I'm going to use that to provoke Israel that they should come into Christ Jesus as well. I hope so. That's certainly my hope, and as I read this text, I think that's what Paul's saying. That's why I put it in question, Mark. It's not altogether clear, and you can even you know, read your Reformed luminaries on these, and they go different directions uh, with what's going on here. And say, nope, the fullness of Israel is the Gentiles coming in. And others just say, no, 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 the fullness is, of course, all that, but then there's, this, there's a future hope of a great conversion of Israel as well. But the truth is, if the stumbling and the hardness of Israel... Is riches to the Gentiles. Is riches to the world. How much more where the, will their fullness be? There is a lot, Christian, to hope for. 
There's a lot to hope for because we have this great richness that's come to us, and that's by the hardness of the Jews. May God be merciful and soften them, give them eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive, that the Jews themselves may come into their inheritance in Christ Jesus, and Christ may put all his enemies under his feet before he comes back. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So evangelism here is an important reality. And evangelism to the Jews is an important reality. And I suggest you look into some way and, uh, to, to support that kind of work. The, the conversion of Israel is important. and we need, they, they, They're not going to, just like Paul has said above, they're not going to believe in the one they haven't heard about. We have to take the message. The message has to be given to Israel. Um, we must uh, lovingly evangelize Jews along with everyone else, along with all the other pagans and unbelievers and idolaters out there. That's our job, to lovingly give them the truth, not to hate them, but to love them as Christians. And indeed, we can, we can expect the very life from the dead. So God's, God's large-scale plans are in view here. Right? The hardening of one nation, uh, the opening of the gospel to all sorts of nations, and this great move in the world called Christianity, which has entirely changed human history. Just the, just the church, just the work of the church has entirely changed human history, but the work of the church is the work of Christ, seated at his Father's right hand and ruling over his people. Okay? He's, doing, he's, he's building his church, he's doing his thing from the right hand of the Father in heaven. And he will return, Christians, and he will judge the living and the dead, as we'll say right now in our creed. This is Messiah. This is the one we must believe in and serve, and the one we must proclaim that others can believe and serve him too, and recognize these large-scale plans that God has for the nations. He's in control of all of that. The rise and fall of kings, and of countries, and of nations. It's all in God's plan. And part of that plan is revealed right here, is the salvation of the nations, and the salvation of Israel herself. Behold the authority and the majesty of your God as he controls all of the nations of men. Not just the nations, but his church. And not just the church, but this church. And not just this church, but your family and yourself as well. God is God over you. Christ Jesus must have dominion. That Jew from Nazareth, that Jew from Nazareth must have dominion in your life, in your heart, in your family, in this church, in our state, the state of Oregon, in our country, and in the world. Christ Jesus must have dominion of all of it. So let us, as, as Christ comes to feed us and give himself, his flesh and blood, to us, serve us with that, that we should feed upon him and rejoice in him and recognize our God has big plans. Sometimes we get lost in the little struggles and the little minutiae of our lives. Let's not forget to lift our heads up and say, God is God. God is God over all. God is sovereign over all things. And Christ is building His church. And the very gates of hell cannot prevail against Him. He will do so. May He do so right now in our midst as we feed upon Christ Jesus, hearing His word, coming to the table. Let's pray together.